Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. Finally, someone has done what we've spectacularly failed to do. What's that? Get to the bottom of Wooba. Where's our Bluetooth app? Oh, yeah, Katie Kenny. Amazing what happens when a real journalist gets onto a story. Hey, watch it. You think it's easy curating a plague playlist? Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Tuesday the 19th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Twice a week, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we'll bring you up to speed with matters COVID-19, highlight some of the more unusual things about the crisis, and then slow down to concentrate on one aspect. So, our first Level 2 weekend behind us. It's still like we're on trainer wheels or something, and some big adjustments to make. We too are still working from home, but some of our stuff colleagues are back in the office. We were talking to Hannah Martin, stuff health reporter, earlier, and she's in the office today and said it was really weird. I quote, after two months in my slippers, I'm really hating wearing real shoes. What are these real shoes you speak of, Hannah? Yeah, there are lots of businesses cranking up, aren't there? I tried to book my car in for a warrant and service, which was due for in April, and good old Malcolm down at the local garage says to me, can you wait until next week, mate? I'm snowed. I guess there's, what, eight weeks of vehicles with expired warrants all needing to be done at the same time. And that's going to be a huge workload blip that's going to repeat itself every 12 months when they all come up for warrants again, aren't they? Anyway, yep, I'll see you next week, I said to Malcolm. Of course, you'll be excited that sports teams are starting to crank up again too, Adam. The professional rugby and netball teams getting back into training? Well, actually, I did see that South Korean Football Professional League that is back into action. But instead of playing in front of empty stadiums, one club came up with a novel approach. They filled the stadium seats with sex dolls to mimic a home crowd. The club apologised, but they reckoned there were mannequins, not sex dolls. But I've seen the photos of them cheering, and I'm not convinced. Later on the show, Dr Heather Hendrickson explains what it would mean if the coronavirus becomes endemic, as the World Health Organization has warned it may. She explains the biology and the implications, and also talks about the mystery of the 1918 flu virus, which should be a warning to the world. But first, here's what's happening. So the number of cases has really slowed to a drip, hasn't it? Another zero today, the sixth out of the last seven days, and it has been almost 50 days since there was a case that couldn't be traced, i.e. a case of community transmission. So looking positive, but let's stay the course, New Zealand. President Donald Trump has revealed that he's been taking a malaria drug, that's hydroxychloroquine, which I hope I've pronounced correctly, as a preventative against COVID-19. Now, This is despite his own Food and Drug Administration having warned that the drug should not be used for that purpose because it can cause serious heart problems. Oh, and there's no conclusive evidence that it actually works. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern went on a day trip to Rotorua today and she encouraged other Kiwis to get out and do similar seeing tourist spots around the country. She hinted a bit of a holiday gift maybe on its way for the country, saying the government was giving active consideration to the idea of additional public holidays to encourage Kiwis. Yeah. Encourage Kiwis to get away for long weekends as a boost for local tourism and a little COVID didn't we do well pick me up. Aw. And the World Health Organization is expected to announce an independent inquiry into the source and handling of the coronavirus outbreak that'll kick off once the crisis has settled down. It looks like this won't quite be the tough inquiry into China's behavior particularly that Australia, the US and others have been calling for, but it will be similar to the inquiry that followed the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. All the cool kids have already got a COVID-19 app. Singapore is one called Trace Together that uses Bluetooth. Australia's got COVID Safe. 
China has done something almost dystopian, basically tracking, controlling all your movements. And now at last, New Zealand is about to get its own Big Brother meets Skynet meets Candy Crush app or something like that. Anyway, Jacinda Ardern says the government is finally launching something tomorrow and Stuff National correspondent Katie Kenny knows all about it. Hi, Katie. Hello. Hey, look, there are all sorts of apps out there already, both official and unofficial. What are the kinds of apps that we could have had? They're basically, in, in the absence of any kind of government sanctioned solution, we've seen a, a bunch of apps being made available by the private sector. If you're in Wellington, like I am, you're probably familiar with Ripple, which is kind of a QR code app that's been developed by a local software company here called Paperkite. And the Wellington City Council has endorsed that. Um, so a lot of local businesses are using it. So that's provided some level of consistency here. But elsewhere, you know, there, there are lots of other apps going around that are also based on similar kind of QR code technology. Another one is proximity, but they all work in slightly different ways. And and meanwhile, a lot of businesses are still relying on the old-fashioned pen and paper sign-up sheets as well. So it's, you could end up, you know, you might end up downloading maybe three, you know, if you wanted to go to three different businesses throughout the day, or you might end up writing down your, your name and contact details multiple times. So I think the issue is that, that it's obviously really annoying for people, but not great from a kind of privacy and data security point of view either. We're talking about a trans-Tasman bubble. Why don't we just get their one and use their one? Yeah, that, that's, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> Australia has has recently launched NAP, which is based off of uh, Singapore's one. So it's called COVID Safe in, in Australia, and it works by by using a phone's Bluetooth signal to essentially ping with another phone, also with the app, uh, so that when people are, are, are t- together within like 1.5 metres of each other for more than, I think it's about 15 minutes, they will log each other as a contact. And then that data is, is stored on the person's phone until it's unlocked by health authorities if, if a user tests positive for the virus. Uh, but it really hasn't been a smooth ride for COVID safe. There have been lots of data privacy concerns because the, the data is held by Amazon servers. So sort of to get around some tricky legislative stuff, Australia has drafted its own legislation to to try and, you know, prevent any US authorities from being able to access the data. But then, you know, that legislation in itself raises concerns. So it's all been a bit messy, but they are still confident that it'll help with contact tracing and ultimately isolating and um, stamping out the virus. So I think, you know, we haven't just copied Australia because the the Prime Minister has raised a bunch of concerns that they've experienced and also more widely with Bluetooth technology. She's mentioned that there are issues around iPhone compatibility, battery life, um, signal interference. So I think New Zealand's probably just trying to find something that will work rather than sort of have the same teething issues as, as other countries have experienced. It also requires very high uptake for a Bluetooth app to work, which is another thing. So if you don't have most of the population or a really, you know, decent percentage of the population downloading the app, it's it's just not going to make any difference. We're now on the eve of getting an app. It's being launched tomorrow. What do you know about it? And, like, does it have a cool name, for instance? (laughs) Um, 
We don't know a huge amount, to be honest, but we do know from the Prime Minister's announcement yesterday that well, she's referred to it as a digital diary uh, rather than an app or, or that. So I think that's really to distinguish it from like uh, these Bluetooth or QR code sort of methods. Um, it sounds very, very basic in its functionality. Uh, it's, it sounds like it's, it's basically just a way for people to get keep track for themselves of, of where they're going and when so that if they do later get tested and become positive for the virus, they can very easily pass on information to uh, health authorities that gives them a good a good place to start when it comes to tracing people they might have been in contact with. Right, because crucially the information stays on the phone itself, doesn't it? It's not uploading it to a central database or anything. That's right. So the data would be stored in a user's device rather than held by a business or a software company or even the government. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern really emphasised the privacy benefits of, of having this very simple um, interim solution and, and you know, it said that it was to, to try and ease some of the concerns that have been raised around who's holding the data and who could access it. So this is all very, yeah, it will be it will be held just on people's phones and it will be their information and um, they will only sort of hand it over with consent when necessary to public health authorities. So I guess its value will come down to how many people use it. Are you going to download it yourself? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I mean, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see... What, what it actually looks like and everything. I mean, and and yes, I mean yes. I will. I will be a good citizen and and download it if it kind of if it if it does pass privacy checks and balances, which it's, it sound like it sounds like it will. It, it, you know, it does sound like a fairly low risk, um, sensible interim solution. Exciting stuff. So thank you very much for telling us all about it, Katie Kenny. Oh no problem. Thanks for talking to me. So it's really happening. We're a bi-weekly podcast now instead of daily. My world keeps on changing. Well, not all that much. You've still got a great taste in T-shirts there, Adam. <laughs> True. And, and you're still at the same desk and we're still on the same Google Hangout. Also true. But if and when we decide we actually want to go and do some work from the staff offices again, it's all going to be a bit different from here, isn't it? Yeah, actually, I'm not even sure if we're allowed in the office. Is there, any, is there anywhere for us to sit anymore? Experts are saying hot desking, which is what we've done at Stuff traditionally, is going to be seriously out of fashion under level two. I mean, who wants to share keyboards these days? Yeah, there's all kind of crystal ball gazing going on at the moment about what's going to happen to workplaces as countries start to come out of lockdown. There's one I read about at the weekend that's kind of unusual and, and probably not necessary in New Zealand at the moment if our daily case numbers remain so incredibly low. But the idea is this, 10-day weekends. What? Uh, I'm seriously all ears. It's not exactly how they describe it, but yeah, it's an opinion piece that's been written by a trio of Israeli academics, a couple of biologists and an economist, which ran in the New York Times. And the idea is that even if infection is still quite prevalent in a community, you can keep the economy moving by exploiting a key property of coronavirus, which is its three-day latent period. That's the time during which you might be infected yourself, but you're not yet infectious to anyone else. So what you do is you let people work on a fortnightly cycle, four days on the job, during which time you may or may not get infected, and then 10 days back to lockdown or shelter in place, as they call it, places like the US. So if if you, you're going to get infectious, it'll happen during the time that you're at home, 
so you won't spread it. And then once the fortnight's up, you start over again. Four days in the world, 10 days back at home. And if you want to make this even more efficient over a whole community, you split the population into group A and group B, and you get the four-day stints to fall on alternate weeks. So the mathematical modelling they've done says that this sort of rolling half-lockdown would keep the r naught down below 1. And even though the economy will still be somewhat constrained, you can basically have something approaching normality. Yeah, apparently schools in Austria are already doing something a bit like this. As of yesterday, they're sending alternating cohorts of school pupils to school for five days per fortnight. Yeah, so the idea is that rather than pulling out of lockdown too fast and then getting a big jump in Arnold that forces a fresh, disruptive, unpredictable lockdown, this method makes things far more predictable and sensible. And, and best of all, they can call this a 10-4 system, which means it's likely to be especially appealing to truckers, who, as we know, always go around saying... 10-4, big buddy. Oh, no. You were doing so well. I watched a movie on Friday night. Oh, yeah? With the family. It was a nice, nice little family movie. Contagion, it was called. Totally implausible disaster movie about a virus that starts in a bat, then transfers to a pig, ends up in a wet market, and jumps to a human who gets a fever and a cough, and then it spreads around the world because there's no vaccine, and lots of people die, and society is totally disrupted. Yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, I know I'm actually pretty late to the party on this, but far out. Contagion was made in 2011. And apart from quite a small number of little details, like a different r naught, and that the fact that the virus is, is rather more lethal than our current coronavirus, it pretty much plays out like a you know, pedantic science explainer of exactly what we're going through. I mean, I'm not convinced it's a very good film as a film. You know, the character's kind of thin and it's, it's weirdly undramatic, even though Gwyneth Paltrow and Matt Damon and Kate Winslet and Lawrence Fishburne and Jude Law do their best. But it really was fascinating to watch it just to see how much it accurately describes or predicts the, the COVID-19 crisis. There's social distancing, there's panic buying, there's a race for a vaccine, there's no effective treatment, and there are unproven cures that are touted by conspiracy theorists and a disreputable journalist on a shady blog. Or podcast? It's curious. They really missed a trick. Mm. It should have been a podcast. He does these funny little videos, but everyone knows that podcasts are better than, than vlogs. But anyway, the only thing really that Contagion gets seriously wrong, and I guess it's just because it would seem so ridiculous and implausible, is that it didn't occur to the writers that the chief promoter of conspiracy theories and bogus cures would also be the president of the United States. I haven't seen it myself, but I've seen people talking about it. And one thing that people point out that Hollywood didn't get right was how there's nobody out there clapping the NHS workers. <laughs> there's nobody, there's no prime minister saying, standing there saying, be kind to each other. Yeah. Uh, and people putting teddy bears in the windows. It's like Hollywood went for the, the worst of us. And in lots of ways, what's come out is the best of us. Right, what's next? Cats. You've got a story about, hang on, did we know this? Didn't you know, we know that we're not allowed to pat dogs. The poor dogs around our neighbourhood were beside themselves during lockdown because no one would pat them, poor things. Oh, yeah, but that's different. My understanding is the reason we kept our dog on a lead and didn't pat other people's dogs is the idea that, you know, fomites or spit or whatever with the virus might end up on the dog and then you touch it. So it's, it's dog as surface. But this article is about cats as virus... Uh, What's the word? Vectors. Vectors. So, but this this piece is about cats as virus vectors, as in they actually get the virus, you know, do the whole move the virus around their body and then spit it back out as an infectious type thing. You know, to be honest, I didn't read the piece very carefully. I just saw, you know, watch out for cats. And I thought we should call Gareth Morgan on and, and just see how it rolls. Well, sneezing cats particularly, I suppose. Keep away from them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there were cats in Beijing and in New York who 
when they tested them, had the coronavirus antibodies. So they'd had the virus at some stage. So, you know, and they roam so far, don't they? And there were tigers as well. I guess tigers don't roam quite so far because they tend to be in zoos in our major cities. Yeah. Coronavirus might be the least of the problem if, your problem <laughs> if you come across a tiger wandering around your neighbourhood. Okay, so smaller cats won't bite your head off, but they might give you COVID. True. So should we, should we be scared in New Zealand? Well, I guess it's being cautious of everything, isn't it? <laughs> Why not? Especially tigers. Uh, Right, email inbox. I'm getting off this train wreck. Right, kind email inbox. Well, it's kind of an email inbox. Remember on Friday we played you a voice memo from Alison Perkins who had arrived back in the country from Mexico via the US. She was in managed isolation in a hotel in Auckland, one of those facilities where people are returning from overseas are held for 14 days. Alison asked a very good question, which was, why aren't we testing everyone who returns to the country as a matter of routine? Well, Stuff Health reporter and regular Coronavirus NZ guest Hannah Martin asked the Ministry of Health what the answer was, and here is what she found out. Hi, guys. Uh, so, yeah, I had a, a chat with the Ministry of Health. They say that uh, everyone who arrives into the country is being screened upon arrival. Um, those with symptoms are sent into quarantine and are tested. Um, but people without symptoms, like Alison, go into a, an approved managed isolation uh, facility around the country. So that's a, a hotel in most cases. Um, they say that while there is capacity to test everybody who enters the country, uh, it's better to test at the right time in the illness, which is when a person has symptoms. Uh, they say that while asymptomatic people are known to still be able to carry and spread COVID-19, the test is most useful in symptomatic people because it needs to pick up the virus particles themselves. Uh, either way, uh, asymptomatic people like Alison are kept isolated for 14 days and are monitored daily uh, to see if they are developing symptoms. If that does happen, uh, they are then tested. So this is this is still happening. You know, I still don't quite get it. Why don't they still test them just before they leave? You know, belt and braces, safety first, all that. Good question, Adam. Plague playlist, what do you got for us? This one's nice and close to home. So for the last few years at high school, my son was in the big band. You know, lots of brass instruments, funky beats, drums bashing away at the back, great stuff. Sometimes they got a singer along and did some blues numbers. Anyway, so he's left school now, but he still keeps an eye on what the school's jazz department gets up to. And he just forwarded me this really cool thing they did over the lockdown. So members of the school's jazz combos and big band and jazz orchestras have all videoed themselves at home playing their part of this one song, and then someone with a, I guess, fairly big computer and lots of patience has stitched them all together into a single performance. It's really impressive. So shout out to the students and teachers from the Rangatoto College Jazz Department. And here's a little bit of the sound they made. And the song is called A Few Good Men by Gordon Goodwin. What about a joke? Eugene, do you have a joke? The isolation joke station has closed down for level two. <gasps> You're going to have to get your bad dad jokes elsewhere, Adam. Okay. Um, would we accept bad dad jokes sent in by members of the great listening public? I think we would. I think we would. Okay. The worse, the better. So last week, 
a bloke from the World Health Organization, Mike Ryan, okay, he's not just any bloke, he's the WHO's emergencies chief, said almost in passing in a press conference that it was possible that COVID-19 could become an endemic disease like HIV, AIDS or measles. So endemic, which sort of means it's just there. So that sounded alarming, and it also made us wonder, what does that really even mean for a disease to become endemic? So like the last time we got baffled by something virus-related, we emailed Dr. Heather Hendrickson from Mass University with a message that said, more or less, help! And she has once again come to our rescue. So, Heather, hi. Hey, great to uh, talk to you guys again. So, as ever, let's start with the, the simple definitions. What does it mean to say that a disease or a virus has become endemic in a community? So essentially, endemic is going to mean that it is something that we expect. It is something that is kind of a constant feature of the way that we think about diseases or, or, or organisms in our environment. What does that mean? Where does it go? How does it live? Is it like an underground bunker of these things? <laughs> so viruses, um, and especially the kind of viruses that we're talking about here, where we have a spillover event that has come from um, animals and led to the current coronavirus pandemic that we're all dealing with. It's really interesting, actually, because where these viruses are when they're not causing a pandemic is it's something of a mystery sometimes, right? Like, so until the people start going out into nature, doing huge amounts of sequencing and trying to isolate viruses and discover viruses, we might not pay attention to where a virus is until it becomes a pandemic and then until it eventually becomes something like an endemic. You know, right now we have endemic viruses like uh, influenza, so flu. There are lots of different flavors of influenza, but it's it has come from animals at some point and then entered the human population and been somewhat successful. And then there might be changes that take place that make slightly new versions of that. And it kind of rolls around the globe, slowly changing and sometimes recombining to make slightly new versions. So depending on how you want to define a particular virus, it can be hiding in animals, it can be rolling around the human population. And when it's hiding in animals and it's not causing active infections in people, we might not know which animals those are until we go out and start studying the ecology and the evolution of the specific viruses that we're interested in. We know from talking to you last time that a virus isn't alive as such. It requires a host. See, I did listen. So, <laughs> so if it goes away and isn't causing great chaos, it will be existing somewhere on a host, living on a host yeah, and reproducing that way, keeping alive that way. Yeah, exactly. And there are lots of viruses that are living in, for example, waterfowl or in pigs or in bats, as in the case of the coronavirus. And they might not even be causing a lot of um, disease. I was reading some papers this week about um, influenza, for example, and they were talking about how you know, ducks and geese and waterfowl carry huge numbers of viruses, um, have absolutely no symptoms. And these are viruses that then can be, um, you know, kind of put into our waterways, as, as you can imagine, you know, ducks are excreting things into waterways all the time. And then they fly off and go uh, land in another pond. Um, but even going through and figuring out exactly what types of viruses live in those types of um, organisms all the time, just naturally, is something that we don't always do very well. With coronavirus, because we only started seeing coronaviruses that were affecting people, 
people in kind of 2003 in the the SARS outbreak, um, and then again in 2012 in the MERS outbreak, it's been really hard for people who wanted to study coronaviruses to get a lot of funding to go and do those kinds of surveys that are necessary in order to figure out like where do these things hang out normally. So can you walk us through a scenario where COVID ends up as an endemic disease? COVID now is mutating and we're seeing as people, you know, take a look at the the sequence of the the virus itself, they can see there are changes that are taking place, but these don't seem to be making it worse for us in particular. It's just kind of got this random mutations taking place and making it a little bit different as it spreads around. And what some of those changes may eventually do is allow this to find another animal species to infect and even one that it doesn't have very serious consequences for. So if, for example, it found another place to replicate and was doing well, it could just exist in this other species. And then at some point, if it got another mutation, it might come back again, or it might start doing the kinds of things that we see in flu, which is exchanging bits and pieces and picking up you know, entirely new ways of of interacting with our immune cells, for example, or hiding itself in its little membrane um, and become something slightly different. So the idea of virus like this becoming endemic is that it can change over time and that as it changes, it could either change the way it's interacting with our immune systems or change the way it interacts with some other organism and find a different place to, to replicate. Is there a scenario where without changing significantly, it becomes endemic just because there's always enough humans around to just keep it rolling around the globe. Is is that one of the ways things can become endemic? It doesn't have to have a reservoir in another animal host, right? It could just keep cycling around the globe as the, as the seasons go on. But yeah, it doesn't have to find an animal vector. But one of the things that people have been talking about is the possibility that it will. Like if it's come out of animals, it could it's still probably in animals and it could go back into animals and continue mutating and then come back again as a, as a slightly different variant, but that's not necessary. A really big example of a disease that was a pandemic and then became endemic in the long term is the H1N1 flu virus that caused the 1918 flu epidemic. Is that a useful model of the way this coronavirus might settle in for the long haul? It might be. um, And I guess that's one of the things that we're all still waiting to see. If we take a look at the differences between, you know, what an H1N1 virus is like and what this coronavirus is like. One of the big differences is that if we look at the structure of the H1N1, it's really named for this H bit and this N bit, but there are really eight genes in that flu. So that's a virus that has a segmented genome. So inside of the virus capsid itself, it has eight little bits of information. And one of those encodes for the H part and one of those codes encodes for the N part. And one of the interesting things about the way the H1N1 and its derivatives evolve is that each of those different little parts can be sort of chopped and changed with other little bits um, of a similar virus. So you can get things like H2N2, which is what we saw in 1957, and you could get H3N2, where you have different versions of the H, but the same version of the N. And because they're in different little parts, it just takes a single animal being infected by two different versions of this flu to just swap out almost like a swatch, like those watches that like, you know, I don't know if they're still popular, but like, you know, you take the wristband from one and you take the face from another and, and you put it all together and you've got a completely new flu flavor of watch. Well, the same thing happens with the influenza viruses. What's different 
in terms of the coronavirus is that it doesn't have this kind of segmented genome. The coronavirus has a really big RNA genome that's 30 KB. And what we've already seen and what we talked about last time is that there is still recombination, right? Like, so one of the big news stories has been, you know, did it come from bats or did it come from pangolins? And the answer is, so far the sequencing suggests that this came from bats. But there's a little tiny bit that looks like it's, it's recombined with a coronavirus from a pangolin, which is interesting, but we don't know if that means that they, they were in pangolins or there was one pangolin, you know, five years ago that got infected by the same bat virus. We just don't know yet. But it's those kinds of recombination events that can take place. But we expect them to take place because this is not a segmented virus a little bit slower in the case of coronavirus. Where did H1N1 go after 1918? It is really interesting. If you look back at some of the the publications that have come out about what happened to this 1918 H1N1 flu, they think that it went into swine and people at about the same time as far as we can tell. And in swine, it appeared to just stay um, and keep infecting. And In people, it looks like the H1N1 variety of influenza kind of went away in 1957 and was replaced by a slightly different version called H2N2, where there was a different version of the H bit and a different version of the N bit. And then after 1957, there was just like just absence of H1N1. And it looked like it had completely gone away across the globe. You couldn't find any sign of this. And around the globe, people were encouraged to start working on H1N1 and to understand why it had been so devastating, why it had infected a third of the population of the globe and probably killed about 50 million people. It was a really interesting subject. But what's really strange and interesting is that in 1977, suddenly there was a new outbreak of H1N1 and it looked exactly like one of the variants that had existed in the 1950s. And what that means is that there have been a lot of suggestions that that 1977 outbreak of H1N1, which is still circulating in the population, like we're still seeing new varieties of that same H1N1 that was possibly released from a laboratory by accident by somebody working in the laboratory, probably getting infected with this flu that they were working on and then taking it out of the community. So there was a time where we didn't have any H1N1 around and it had been apparently eradicated. But because we were still studying it, it might actually have broken out of the laboratory at that point because the sequences between the 1950s and the 1977 outbreak are just too similar. So I guess that's a a word of warning maybe for people that work on virus to make sure that we're um, absolutely up to spec with all of our biosafety. Um, and uh, yeah, an interesting, an interesting lesson maybe in general. Dr. Heather Hendrickson, thank you very much. That's been fascinating. Always a pleasure. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Tuesday the 19th of May. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Katie Kenny, Hannah Martin, Heather Hendrickson, Alex Yu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, remember that email is viruspod at stuff.co.nz and if you want to support Stuff's journalism by making a financial contribution, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Thanks for catching up with us. Good to see you on a Tuesday. We'll be back on Thursday. Ahoy. Ahoy.